This morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 11 in just a few moments together. Here we are. Christmas is over and we're still lighting Advent candles. What's going on with this church? The candles were lit. The songs have all been sung. The gifts have been opened. The meals have been eaten. And there's even just a few cookies left, right? A few pieces of chocolate remaining in my home. Seems like Christmas is by and large over, right? But Advent is not over. This morning, we're going to take this opportunity, sort of with Christmas falling in between Sundays, to allow that, to to remind us that while we celebrate Christmas, the birth of a Savior, we celebrate His appearing, we we make the connection that His, His appearing, the birth of the Savior, was born to die. Christmas is an inauguration of the work of the gospel by the coming of the Messiah. While we celebrate and remember all of these things, We also make the connection that Advent, longing, and awaiting of a coming remains for us. We also make the connection that the Savior's work is finished in his crucifixion and resurrection, and the Savior has ascended with the promise that he would return triumphant, glorious, and eternal king. And that's why our Advent Remembering our Advent participation lingers. Christmas causes us to remember that God, our Savior, is covenant keeper. Easter, it reminds us to remember that he has secured a kingdom and a people. But Advent is not just a remembering. Advent is a participation in and observation of longing, and hope. It's a call to the people of God to enter into the season in which we find ourselves, a season in which the king is coming. The king will return, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is where we are this morning, and so the season of Advent remains for us. In many ways, it's not the conclusion of an Advent observation It's the beginning of another year of Advent waiting while longing, Lord, may this year not come to an end. May this year not come to yet another December 22nd and Advent celebration. Let this be the year, Lord, where the King comes. May you reign forever and ever. Revelation chapter 11 Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 15. Follow along with me there. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Heavenly Father, what a glorious declaration. We await the day of the sounding of that trumpet and the voices that follow, that the kingdom of this world would become your kingdom, consummate, that that you would take possession of what is yours by right. 
Lord, we long for that day. I pray that you would tutor our hearts in these moments what it looks like to live as an Advent people, that this would become our observance daily, increasingly early in the morning. We would long for your return daily in this coming year. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. This morning, we're going to begin with a question. In the Advent series, we've walked through the history of redemption, right? Really, the history of how we lost our place in the kingdom of God. We began with Adam and Eve, and we saw that very quickly, this is where we find ourselves. We were placed in God's place under God's rule, placed there as God's people, but we lost that place so that we're no longer God's people in God's place under God's rule. And the question for us that remains throughout salvation history is how might we be restored? Is there anyone who can bring us back to that Place? Is there any king who can restore the peace of the kingdom that we have lost? During the course of our Advent study in the past four weeks, we saw that Moses and Joshua, they were unable. They brought the people into the land of God's promise, but the people's sin and rebellion and idolatry quickly demonstrated that that place was not ultimately God's perfect place under God's perfect rule in which he would bring God's people into perfect peace. Even the land of promise is a land where sin and brokenness persist. The land of promise must not be the final dwelling place of God's people. Moses and Joshua were unable. David and Solomon, we saw just last week, they were not able To answer this question, is anyone able to restore us? How might we be brought back into God's, as God's people, into God's place, under God's rule? David and Solomon were unable. David, he received the promise of a son who would sit on the throne forever. God's great covenant promise to David. But he also received a condition. We considered that last week, that the dynasty would persist if the one who sits on the throne would remain faithful and reign in faithfulness under the Lord God. Neither David nor Solomon nor any of their sons fulfilled that condition to walk in faithfulness to the word of God. Now, as we walk our way throughout redemption history, what we discover is even up to our day, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we will come back to in a moment, No one has been able. No one is able to restore the kingdom. As we look at salvation history, we see that there are three categories of rebellion against God. That is, there are three ways on this side of the fall, having lost access to the kingdom, three ways that we continue in the ways of our first parents, Adam and Eve, to shake our fist at God and say, on my own, I can live apart from the king, apart from the rule of his word. I can restore peace to the land. There are three ways that we vainly pursue restoration. The first very broad category, um, I'm just going to call it for now utopianism. It's the idea of a, a corporate rebellion against God, that we can establish a government of peace without God. 
a sort of corporate self-salvation project, whether it be through the notion of a benevolent and conquering dictator, a monarch who will establish peace and justice for a particular people in a particular place against all other kingdoms and rules and authority. Or, since that seems a bit outmoded, right? The idea that a people can form a government, perhaps a government of democracy, and secure a peace through just laws. And increasingly common today and in the last century, the idea that through education, through technological progress and understanding of the diversity of cultures that exist on the planet, all the people of the earth can unite together as one human people and experience sort of a kingdom of humanity together. We can experience peace. These are all ways that we seek to restore the kingdom, the peace of the garden of God on our own. They're a sort of corporate Rebellion. History has shown us that no human king, no government, no institution has been able to mitigate against sin and depravity. Every single time one of these projects has been undertaken, it has failed. The second very broad category of our seeking of the kingdom on our own is, is hedonism, a sort of individualistic rebellion. It's to seek our own peace and our own prosperity. Yeah, we see that there's suffering and sin all around us, but we can avoid these things by seeking our pleasure. It's sort of, I'm going to seek me and mine, right? I'm going to look out for us. The world may still be fallen, but as for me and my house, we will eat, drink, and be merry. But we forget that for those who eat, drink, and are merry, tomorrow we die. It can seem like it's working, particularly in the cultural moment that we are in. We can feel like our peace and prosperity is working for us. Our pursuit of private peace and and prosperity, our individualistic rebellion is working. I can have the bounty of the garden of God without the word of God. But in the end, the curse that God laid down in the garden finds us, and our rebellion is struck down for tomorrow we die. And then there's a, a third kind, and unfortunately this kind very much so makes its way into the very church of God. A sort of legalism. A legalism that's a self-righteous rebellion to demonstrate to God that he should let us back into the kingdom. Why? No, we lost it. And I'm looking around and I see why you kicked us all out. But let me demonstrate why you should let me back in. Yes, I see that there is a curse. But the curse, God, I mean, really, if you think about it, is a curse for the disobedient. And I can show you that I'm not like the rest of the sinners. I can follow the rules. I'll memorize the words. And I'll stick to them right down to the letter. But we fail to see the true nature of our rebellious hearts, that we are under the curse of death, not because somehow we got lumped into the category of sinners by accident. Our pursuit of righteousness by self-determination is itself revealing of our rebellion. Pause there. It's a season of resolutions, right? How many of us have... In the past, and this morning, are considering 
making a resolution of self-righteousness. This year, I'm going to get it right by self-determination and resolution. We don't see that that is the same thing. It's still rebellion. Apart from God and his salvation, I can live by the letter of the law. We continue to believe that we don't need God. We, though we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we can fulfill the righteousness of God on our own, apart from God. It's still a shaking of our fist in the air with blind determination. On my own, I can live. On my own, I can be righteous. Legalism is self-righteousness and is still rebellion. In the end, whether it's utopianism, whether it's hedonism or legalism, not one nation, not one people, not one individual in all of history has taken hold of what was lost. Here's what we need to hear, and here's what Revelation gloriously reveals to us, that apart from some grace of God outside Ourselves, apart from our own failed striving, there is no hope that we can be restored to righteousness and peace. No one has ever been able. But there is one who has come, and there is one who is coming again. What I want you to do is I want you to keep a, a note, a finger, a piece of paper, whatever, in Revelation chapter 11, Okay? Then I want you to turn over with me to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 there. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's a helpful note here. So you're flipping there that Revelation is not revelations. It's not just a collection of a variety of stories about the future. It's the revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when it speaks, it's speaking about the Redeemer, whether it's in chapter 11, whether it's in chapter 5. And so let us hear about the Savior and the King, Jesus Christ, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, The angel proclaimed, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, that is the Apostle John writing here, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Enter into the scene for a moment. I would invite you to to learn how to weep with John, the one who gives us this revelation, this prophecy. We weep as we remember what was lost. In the garden, God's word was the rule. It's one of the things that I've learned the most during the course of this series is is the fact 
that God's rule, his reign, his kingdom, his kingship, his authority is by means of his word. Right at the beginning, creation itself comes into being because God spoke and it was. This is the nature of God's rule. It is a word rule. In the garden, God spoke words, words of generosity, words of authority. You may eat of any tree in the garden that I've given to you. Go and eat. But only this one you may not eat or you will surely die. Now, when the tempter comes, what does he do? How does he contest the rule and reign of God himself? Did God really, what, say? What does he contest? He contests God's word. From the moment the word of God's rule was called into question and humanity failed to trust and walk in light of the word, all of creation has been lost in darkness, sin, and death. The reign of God is rejected, and we begin to say we will rule by our word. Now, look back again at Revelation chapter 5. The question is this. Is there anyone who can open the scroll? The scroll, what does the scroll have? It has words inside and out. Is anyone able to open the scroll? Is anyone able essentially to open, know, and execute the word of God, the very will of God for all of creation? Is there anyone with the authority of God, the righteousness of God, the knowledge of God with, that can execute the word of God? No one has ever succeeded at restoring that word before. No human effort prior has ever succeeded. Every human effort has failed. And John begins to weep loudly. I have to be honest, when I read that last night again, when I've read that in the past, I can participate with him very quickly. I can feel John's words. I can feel his emotion. Is there anyone who can open the scroll? Is there anyone who can finally restore the peace of the cycle of failure and condemnation? Will end. To long to for the perfect reign of God to be established again. I know what it is to despair of, of every hope. But friends, that weeping, the weeping of John in that passage, our participation with him in this sort of Advent weeping is a faint heartbeat, a seed of faith. That weeping is essential to faith. Listen, it's to despair of hope in ourselves. That weeping is to say, I've seen utopians. It doesn't work. I've seen all the governments of the earth. There's no hope. There's no king coming. There's no great system. I've tried to establish peace and prosperity for myself, but accumulated it all and with Solomon. And then all those wealthy heroes of the past and present, we too will die. It's to despair. 
It's to have genuine poverty of spirit. Is there anyone who can enact the very will of the righteous king? Unless you, God, work, we are without hope. It's the seed. It's the first heartbeat of faith. And that seed is met with proclamation, good news, a good word right there in the weeping, the despairing of self, of poverty, of spirit. The elder comes and speaks gospel words, weep no more, he says to John. This is the end of our waiting. It's interesting to me that Revelation 21 says that God will wipe away every tear from every eye, and it begins right there. In the moment of despairing that God's kingdom would ever come by any of our efforts, by any of what we've seen before, in that moment of despairing is when the gospel word that every tear will be wiped out of our eye comes to us. The fact is there is one who is worthy to execute the word and will of God. And it's upon that basis that we weep no more. God invades humanity and invades humanity with a promise and a hope. He changes the story. The cycle is broken. And verse 5 tells us, the means of its breaking, the, the name of the one who has come, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. The king that was promised, who would reign forever, who would sit on the throne of David in faithfulness and righteousness, has come. There is a fulfillment of the promise of God to David. This is the son who is able to execute the will of God in perfect faithfulness. And this is what we need. This is why we are a people of mourning who have seen a great light. We are people who despair of all of ourselves and all of the world, but who hope in the one who has come and who is coming again. We've tried our way and it's failed. What we need is a foreign invader. We need God to invade humanity and put down our rebellion. And this is the very work of King Jesus, the one sent from God who reigns on the forever throne of David. We have the revelation of the answer to our Advent question, is there a forever king? And the answer is, in Revelation chapter 5, brought all the way through all of those seals and those trumpets of Revelation to Revelation chapter 11. Yes, there is a forever king. Let us consider him. John's question in chapter 5 came just before the lamb who is worthy to break open the seals and open the scroll comes. The, those, scroll, those seals begin to be broken as the scroll, the very will of God, unfolds among the world. By the time you get to chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, it launches into the sounding of seven trumpets. And with these trumpets come great judgments and great woes upon the earth. And then we come to Revelation chapter 11. 
And what do we have in Revelation chapter 11? We're still in the unfolding of the will of God in the seventh seal that's been opened by the one who is worthy to execute the the word and will of God. What happens in chapter 11, verse 15? We have the launching of the seventh trumpet. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Finally, all the seals are open. This long last seal with its seven soundings plays its course. And so when we get to that seventh trumpet and it sounds, notice in verse 15, what is it? It's all the voices of heaven. Heaven itself rises up like it's been waiting for this moment. Like we know what to say next. After the seventh trumpet sound, we know what to say. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Unbroken righteousness and peace in the kingdom. That's the triumphant announcement of the end of rebellion, the establishment of the coronation of the forever king. I love how Matthew Henry, the commentator, writes, they give Christ thanks because he has asserted his rights, exerted his power, and so turned title into possession. This is where we are. We know who King Jesus is. We know his name. We know the foundation of the authority of his kingship. We know to call him king. We sing to him as king. We know that he's anointed. We know that he's Christ Messiah. But he hasn't yet turned title into possession. And we long for the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And we would join with heaven and earth and say, He shall reign forever and ever. On this day, described in Revelation 11, the object of our Advent longing appears. Jesus, the king, takes possession of his kingdom and no corner of creation escapes his righteous rule. You see that if you look at the verses that follow. This is the answer that we've been waiting for. The answer to the question, is there a forever king? Is there anyone who could break the cycle and sit on the throne of the kingdom forever and execute the word of God unbroken against and over every rebellion? And the answer is there is a forever king and he has conquered the enemy. And my my watch thinks it found something too. We've established God, we've already established that God's rule is by his word. That's why that scroll is so important. The longing that the scroll would be opened, the seals would be broken, that the trump would sound according to what is in the scroll because he rules by his word. So I love John Piper's description of the word and decree of Jesus' kingdom. We call it the gospel. We call it good, what? News, right? What is the news? What is the word that resounds? It's a great summary and exclamation of the elders of verses 17 and 18. Here's John Piper's summary. It's on the screen behind me as well, so you can follow along. Hear ye, hear ye. All rebels, insurgents, dissidents, protesters against the king. 
Now, we could go back and exegete that for a little while, but let's just summarize everybody. That's what the history of redemption has demonstrated for us. We're covered in there somewhere and probably under a few of those words. All rebels, insurgents, dissidents, and protesters against the king hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming. It's so important that we we begin there. If we don't begin there, we skip Genesis chapter 3 and really most of human history. We, We remove the curse and the promise of judgment. Now hear this. A great day of reckoning is coming, a day of justice and vengeance. But hear this. All inhabitants of the king's realm, amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid. All debts may be forgiven. All rebellion absolved. All dishonor pardoned. None is excluded from this offer. Lay down the weapons of rebellion, kneel in submission, receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love, swear fealty to your sovereign and rise a free and happy subject of the king. Friends, that's good news for rebels and insurgents when there is a heroic, almighty, authoritative, and conquering king coming to take his kingdom back. If that's the news on his lips before his return, we would do well to listen. There is a day that's coming. And the call is to put away all utopian dreams, all hedonistic pursuits, and all legalistic lies and become subject to the king of righteousness. For to become subject to the king is to be a recipient of his grace. What I want to do as we close our time in this season of Advent here in December, I want to send us with words from a well-known carol. And I want this carol to serve us, to show us how we can continue in the observation of Advent in weeks and months. And as we tarry upon the Lord, as we wait upon him for however many years he would will. The carol is joy to the world. I I recently heard again that this is not actually a Christmas carol, though it's a carol appropriate to sing at Christmas. It's actually a second advent carol. Joy to the world is by and large based upon Psalm 98. Psalm 98 reads like this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. When does he appear like that? When does he ride in and take care of his enemies as other places in that same psalm indicate? He does that when he returns. Friends, that's not a Christmas announcement. That's an announcement of joy at the return of a triumphant and eternal king. It's our Advent song, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth Receive her king. 
We give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign, Revelation says. Now, there are four implications for us this morning, this very day, that are actually found in the four verses of joy to the world. And we'll simply end our Advent observation this morning by considering those four implications from that beautiful carol. The first implication is faith. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. May we not be Bethlehem caught unaware at the coming of the king. But let there be room, let there be a place to be occupied. That when the Lord returns, may he not find us sitting on the throne of our own lives. But may he find that throne vacant and perhaps us weeping and longing. Is there anyone worthy who can come and sit on that throne? I'm not. Lord God, take your seat. And when he returns, he finds room. There. What does it look like to be conquered by the king? Because we know he's coming and he's conquering king. What does it look like? Miguel Medina, the pastor at Cross Point Espanol, in prayer, looking at a passage in, uh, in Isaiah, he, he said, I'm both provoked and encouraged hearing that he will judge with equity. I'm provoked and encouraged. I'm provoked because it's a call to give up my throne. It's a call to step down, to prepare him room. We realize that our will and our way become subject to his. And then when we look at him, when we consider him, we realize that's actually encouraging. He's a better king than I am. Friends, that's faith. It's a call to faith. The second verse of Joy to the World calls us to worship. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat. I think it's a key word in that song. Why sing old songs again? I already sang that. Handel's Messiah saying that last week. Why did we sing it again? Why do we bring up hymns and songs and tunes and sing them over and over again? Didn't we are kind of already cover that. Are we so cognitive that we can say, I already know that. I don't need to make my mouth make those shapes and sing those sounds again. No, because they sound our joy. They sound our hope. They remind us of our salvation. There is a commission in this hymn that I think we ought to take up because it's a commission that are in the Psalms themselves. A commission to employ your songs. Put them to work. Employ your creative craft. I was thinking this week about the many of you here, you you have a craft. You have a creative endeavor. You're writers. You're you're players of instruments. You're painters. You're thinkers. 
And in all of those places, employ your craft to make a melody, color a canvas, pen a lyric, employ your songs. Brothers and sisters, we have songs that need to be written. I love old hymns. They're old and we still know them because they were good enough to still be known. All right? I don't know if the new songs are good yet. Give it a hundred years and we'll see. But we're not done writing. Lord willing, one of the songs that you write will be sung in a hundred years because it's a song that would remind us of his glory, that we would employ our creative endeavor in worship. Let us worship as a people longing, expecting the king to return. Third verse is a call to obedience. Let us not forget, this is not self-righteousness. To say that the word of the Lord is worthy of our submission in life. That's faith. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse will end and blessings will flow. And so in faith, let sin and sorrow no longer grow. On the basis that the king is coming and his kingdom will be without end, let us become his subjects today. You're already the king by name and you're coming as conquering king and all will be as your scroll has it written. Today, Lord, let me be in submission to your word. Let sin no longer grow here because your word has taken up residence. You reign by your word in our hearts. And the fourth verse, so easy to forget. He rules the world with truth and grace, makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. As I look at the nations and the peoples and the places and the communities and the neighborhoods, I see the nations rage. And when I see the nations rage and I listen to the news and I read articles and I try to be an informed citizen of this particular country, as I look at the world, my inclination is to see nations raging and to despair. You know what I'm talking about. But he rules the world with truth and grace. And there will be a day in which he makes the nation prove the glories of his righteousness. And we will all agree that his kingdom, his authority is greater and forever. And we need not despair, but rather hope. That's why Advent is a season ongoing of hope. I think the last verse is the most forward-looking of them all. We know that no nation, people, or individual of this world will restore what was lost at the fall. But when the king returns, now his kingdom is his. We'll know then truth and grace. This is our Advent hope. Now, I think that there is a very practical final application Sometimes I I become a bit weary 
of this application. It can, I know that there are many here, including myself, that's going to hear this final application, and you're going to say, yeah, I know. I'll try harder this time. But let us consider this. The, the most functional way that we can come under the rule of a king who rules by means of his word. What is it? O Lord, a king who rules by means of his word, and we don't have to wait for that word. We know it. We have it recorded. We even have the scroll opened and written for us. We know his will. Is it not to sit daily under the rule of his word? Isn't the final application to say, God, you're king, and you've given your word, In this year, another year of Advent, waiting and hope, I will situate myself under your word because that is what your kingly authority has done for me. Make room, God, in my heart to be ruled by your word. In the prayer at the beginning, I said increasingly early in the morning. I know many of you wake up Insomnia, anxiety, exhaustion that leaves you too tired to sleep. May that sort of longing lead you earlier and earlier in the morning to run to the word. To be anxious to remember hope. To be reminded that the king is coming. This is to subject our daily desires early in the morning to the way of the king and the way of his kingdom. God, we have desires. We confess, we've already confessed, we have desires and we wake up with them ready, rejuvenated for another day to conquer us. Lord, I pray that in this coming year, you would, by your alien righteousness, your your invading, conquering of our heart and soul by your word, would displace our worldly desires, that the kingdom of this world would become in us, your people, the kingdom of our Lord, that is Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would reign today and forever and ever. Displace our desires by the rule of your word. Give us a new desire, a new appreciation of the good news, not only of amnesty, but of righteousness and peace. Lord, we thank you that you have done this by the work of the cross that it is because of your work there that amnesty has been purchased. The the punishment has already been laid down. The curse has been fulfilled for all those who trust in you by faith. And Lord, now we have for ourselves only the hope of your return. May you birth that in us earlier and earlier in the morning in this coming year. Thank you, Lord. We pray that because of your conquering our hearts, that there would be joy. Joy to the world. 
in the midst of our households that would overflow and to join our neighborhoods as we make known the good news of your kingdom this coming year. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. In the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.